Please sit comfortably. So day two. All settled in nicely. Um, to give this talk a title, it's called The Three Sisters. And um, I made up a, a story as a way of giving this talk. And it's kind of like a children's story. And you might find a familiar um, story within it. And it's called The Three Sisters. <clears throat> but once upon a time, there was a man, young man, and he grew up in a family that was very wealthy and he had everything he needed. Um, and one would have thought that he was quite a, would be quite a happy young man because he had all of these things. He was actually very sad and, um, and unsatisfied with his life. And when he looked around him, he saw a lot of bickering, a lot of fighting, conflict, competition, people being nasty to one another, people being greedy, you know, and he was quite despondent that this was the way human beings kind of interacted with one another. So he decided to leave his family and he went into the forest to be by himself to try and get some better understanding of how to be a, a human being. And after many years, he, he, after he left go of all of that wealth and treasure, he found another treasure and it was a jewel within. And when he discovered this jewel, he became full of light and joy and love. And he came back into the world again and everyone could see how different he was, that he just radiated this naturally, all this joy and love and light. And, and people were very um, drawn to him you know, and, and his teachings. And he, um, to, not entirely, but to a large degree, he sort of transformed the, the community around him and the society around him. Now, in this story, there's a bit of a deviation. So this, this um, man comes back into life and he marries and he has three daughters. And then eventually the, um, the uh, old man dies but he gave an inheritance to the daughters and with the three daughters, the three sisters, each of them inherited um, a facet of the jewel and uh, they, they had that, that characteristic in, their, in their, their nature, in their personality. And um, the first, the oldest daughter's name, the oldest sister, was called Nirvana and um, Nirvana was just um, a very naturally beautiful woman and very charming with all the social graces and very loving and more, very warm and everyone was very drawn to Nirvana, like everyone just loved being around her because of her energy. And, uh, but everything came very easy to Nirvana and uh, and she represented the, um, the inside aspect of the jewel. And, uh, but because everything became so easy for her, and she just liked that as a natural, what came along with that is that Nirvana could be a little bit entitled at times, just expecting that everything would go her way. And um, then there was the, um, the second sister, and she had a, another beautiful name too. 
and her name was Serenity. And um, Serenity represented another aspect of the jewel. And Serenity was very pretty too, but she was more of a um, practitioner. Like she wasn't a natural like, um, like Nirvana was, and she had to kind of work at it. So she was very disciplined and very organised and um, really on the ball. And if you wanted something done, you came to Serenity to get it done, whereas Nirvana was kind of like just the sort of natural sort of flower that everyone was attracted to. So there was Nirvana, and then there was Serenity, and everyone knew about Nirvana and Serenity like they really shone. But then there was a third sister, and she was very plain, and she was very stout, and her name was Precept. <laughs> very plain name. And um, Precept was sort of was rather homely and didn't sort of, um, you know, seek out the limelight or anything. Everyone was attracted to her two big sisters. Um, but as people got to know the three sisters and all of their qualities, they found that when they got to know um, Precept, you know, who was the least outgoing of the two, that um, she had enormous depth of character. And whenever um, she was the one that people came to and trusted the most, you know, with their with their concerns and so on, and she gave very wise counsel. And so they were the three sisters. Now years later, when the three sisters passed on, you know, their, their teachings became very well known because they, each of them passed on the teachings in their own way. And then people from overseas, centuries later, began to learn about, you know, the old man and, and his finding the jewel and then how each of the three sisters manifested the jewel. And everyone heard about Nirvana, right? Because she was just so beautiful and so energetic and loving. And, and she can become like a cult figure. Uh, everyone loved Nirvana and everyone wanted to be around her and be like Nirvana. So she was a celebrity, you know? And everyone read about her and, you know, and they had statues, you know, they had in their house, you know, of Nirvana and so on. And she was really well worshipped. Um, but after a while, um, some people started to think, well, what Nirvana's got is really good, but is that actually, am I actually getting that in my own life? Do you know, am I becoming like Nirvana or not? And so it was only then that they discovered this next sister whose name was Serenity who represented the practice part of it. So when they read about Serenity, who was a goddess as well by this time, is that Serenity's teaching was, do you know, that you, there's things that you need to practice and then, and polish the jewel. You need, you need to keep polishing the jewel. You know? So if you polish the jewel, then this light will start to shine out of it and you'll have all this joy and love manifesting in your life. <coughs> and so, um, Everyone then realised there's this thing called practice, you know, and polishing, polishing the jewel. And then that became very popular, you know, like mindfulness. Uh -huh. And everyone started to realise it wasn't just nirvana, but there was actually something that you could do um, 
to actually um, manifest this jewel in your own life. But no one had heard of precept. Very, very few people have still heard of precept. And, um, but with precept, what, she, what her teaching was, which not so many people have discovered, is that precept has many different roles. One, she's the kind of, um, she, while, while Nirvana manifests all of the beauty and the joy, and serenity keeps polishing the mirror, um, precept was rather modest. And she taught modesty. And what she also taught is to keep on reminding everyone that the jewel is not just manifested in nirvana or in serenity, but it's manifested in everyone. That jewel is within everyone. And so therefore, if that jewel is within everyone, we have to treat everyone like nirvana and serenity because they all have the jewel within themselves. And it was really precept, you know, who brought this third component together. And when they read through the old father's inheritance a bit more closely and his will and testimony that he passed on to his three daughters, um, he said to them, I'm giving you each a manifestation of the jewel, but you all have to work together to manifest this. It's not good enough just to have one of you doing it. You all complement each other. There's, all, there's an integrity here. You all complement each other and you're all needed so that people can continue to find this jewel within themselves. Mm -hmm. So this is a little story about how the Dharma is coming west. And if you look back, like particularly at Zen training, you know, and back, back to the 1950s, Everyone became fascinated with Satori, which is Nirvana. Do you know the, you know the, the, the opening? Do you know and the clarity and the compassion and joy and everything that comes? But no one had ever heard about actually practicing it. There was actually a, a practice called meditation, or Zazen, and that most people, the vast majority of people, probably 99.9%, weren't Nirvanas. Mm -hmm. And that everyone had to practice and um, until they could realise this jewel for themselves. And in, in some areas there is a recognition of, of how important the precepts are, but it hasn't really gone into general knowledge in the general public. Um, and all of these things are needed together. If you think... Um, that just practicing meditation is enough in itself, great. There's a lot of good benefits that come from it. Some people would say that's all you need to do. But if there's no um, inner commitment to some kind of self-reflection on the impact of your actions on others or your actions on yourself and the harm that it does and the disturbance that it creates, then it's very hard to meditate with much peace. Mm -hmm. um, there's many different examples of this, but, but someone who was part of this group years ago was a very committed meditator, and then he kept on coming into me and he kept on saying, it's just not working, 
I said, well, what, what else is going on in your life? And they said, I go to dance parties about three nights a week and take ecstasy and I get drunk on the weekend. <laughs> and I just raise my eyebrows. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh-huh. See, if, you do, if you do something like that, um, of course the practice is not really going to kick in very much. It'll be, there'll be something that will come from it. But we have to examine what our lifestyle is, do you know, and whether our lifestyle and the values that we put into action actually um, help help um, grow this practice. Yeah. Or other examples of it are, you know, if we're, if we're just hell-bent on making millions and millions of dollars, you know, and we're a workaholic, and, you know, we do a bit of meditation on the side, and we don't really care whether we make profits at the expense of other people and so on, well, all of that karma will have an impact on us, and it will impact on, on our serenity, you know, and our, and our ability to really um, see clearly into true nature. So... The, the precepts, as plain as what they might seem to be, um, are a very important um, foundation in this practice. Don't think of it as kind of like a, the poor cousin. You know? um, it's equally important. And so a really true integrated practice is about all of those things working together. There's insight that happens, you know, little openings that occur where we get clarity and peace and, you know, experience unconditional love and they, they inspire us to keep going, you know, and they, they get us in touch with our true nature. And the meditation um, helps us expand that, you know, expand that opening more and more. And the precepts keep us grounded in developing um, integrity of character and, and, and the way that we manifest that light in our actions in the world. Now, in just going through them one by one, we'll just make some brief commentaries on each of them. And um, think of this when we go through each one, think of it as like it's, it's throwing a stone in a pond. You know, each precept is like throwing a stone in a pond, so it kind of has a a ripple effect that goes out, you know, and, it's, and it stays there in the pond, in the unconscious. It's still there, working away. Now, we'll just sort of, don't think about it too much, but just let it drop into you. And also, um, the way the precepts are worded, and, and quite rightly so, is that they're all worded in a way which um, moves us towards being more mindful in the way that we interact with others and other <clears throat> animals and beings and so on, so that the self doesn't get above others, you know, that, that we're not putting ourselves above others. We're sort of being aware empathically and compassionately of the experience of other beings. And that's its prime purpose. Um, and, it's in, and it's important that that is a very central focus of it. However, the other side of it, which I want to just focus on a little bit more today, is if we think that everything is as a whole and everything is all part of this existence called into being, you know, self and other are 
all connected into one. Then the precepts can be seen not just a way, as a way of not harming others, but not harming oneself as well. Mm -hmm. Just like with the, the teaching of self-compassion, you know, which has become very popular in, in Western culture. And I'm, those of you who listen to my talks on Tuesday night will know that I'm somewhat critical about it as well, in that it takes um, a particular type of teaching, compassion, and in an individualistic culture like American and here, we turn it into self-compassion. That's what interests everyone. If you wrote a book called Other Compassion, I don't think it would sell quite as well. But self-compassion, bestseller. Yep. There's nothing wrong with self-compassion. It's very important. Just in the same sense, it's important that we don't harm ourselves and that we don't harm others. But the true integrated teaching is where compassion manifests in all directions. It manifests to... It nurtures our own suffering and it nurtures the suffering of others. Mm -hmm. And the precepts can be seen in the same way, is that it's a way of not harming others and not harming oneself. This version of the precepts, um, um, which I like, comes from um, Norman Fisher, who's a, um, a very well-regarded um, Soto Zen priest in San Francisco, and many of the ordinary mind Zen teachers know him personally and really like him. I do too. Um, the first precept is not to kill, but to nurture life. So we're all probably all familiar with that in the ways that manifests in our relationship with others. And may I say too, and this first precept is really the essence of the rest of them. The rest of them are really just a variation on the same theme as the first one, is to not kill but to nurture life. The thing that's very important to remember about the precepts, and where people can get very hung up on them, is that these are guidelines. This is not about absolute morality. This is not about saying everyone has to become a vegetarian or euthanasia is never, never should happen, you know, or termination of a fetus never, ever should happen. It's not that kind, there's no absolute morality in there because that's a fixed position. And um, if, you, if you really um, research um, some of these ethical issues and, and Buddhist teachings on it, you'll, you'll find nearly all the, the great Buddhist teachers lean heavily, heavily, heavily on not harming. It's all towards not harming. Whatever you can do, try not to harm. There's no absolutes. And, um, and the precepts need to be applied with intelligence, you know, with wisdom, discernment and compassion. So there is always a context in which we have to make ethical decisions. Um, so it's not a matter of saying you should be this and you should be this and following a church doctrine. It's a matter of really getting in touch with your own intention, which is, which is to um, 
be in touch with the, with the experience of interbeing at a cellular level, you know, and to act from that position, to act with good intention, whatever that action might be. But if we turn this towards how we kill ourselves or harm ourselves, what are some of the ways we do that? You know, some of the ways that come to my mind is being a workaholic. I like just working, 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 never taking any time off. Do you know, you see so many people in our culture work, 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 and at age 55 they die of a heart attack. Right? Or they've, they've got cancer because they're so stressed and their immune system is broken down. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways that it happens, like kind of ignoring, ignoring the body in many ways and ignoring the mind for some hell-bent-on goal. Um, Not to steal, but to receive what is offered as a gift. It's obviously directed towards our relationship with others. What are ways in which we steal from ourselves? I can think of a way I do that sometimes. Sleep deprivation. doing so much. I'm stealing from my body. I'm stealing from the energy resources of my body. It's not my body saying, slow down, would you please stop? I keep stealing from it. Mm-hmm. Sleep deprivation, for example. You might want to reflect on ways you do that yourself. A third one. Not to lie, but to be truthful. Now you could probably do about ten Dharma talks on this one. Because if you think of, say, um, you know, well, first of all, Shakespeare's famous words, above all things, to thine own self be true. Mm-hmm. In other words, don't fib to yourself, don't lie to yourself. You did great harm when you do that. If you look at um, a modern psychological, relatively modern, psychological theory like psychoanalysis, like Freud's psychoanalysis, and you look at all the different defence mechanisms, denial, projection, splitting, reaction, formation, etc, 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 they're all the ways that people lie to themselves. That might sound like a harsh word, like a moral word, but they're all the ways that people distort their, their consciousness and their actions and their experience of themselves. It's not, a, it's not an accurate, we, we distort things, we don't have a necessarily an, an accurate view of what our experience is. So say if we, we're angry and we were brought up that anger is a bad thing and we should never be angry, then we lie to ourselves that we're angry. I'm not angry. And then what happens? It all kind of leaks out through passive aggression or something, you know, or resentment. Mm-hmm. And so their examples are the ways that we lie to ourselves, that we're not actually truthful with ourselves. And we would all know through doing this practice, through, through meditation practice, you sit here hour after hour, and you experience the good, the bad and the ugly. Well, we all do. And we just need to be able to um, see that, like looking in a mirror. You know? and, and what makes it possible is that we look into that mirror in a non-judgmental way. 
And if we can, if we can really manifest that, that non-judgmental consciousness, it's not so hard to look at the good and the bad and the ugly. You know, we just, we just drop into the truth of the experience of who we are moment to moment. We don't have to manipulate our consciousness. Not to intoxicate with substances or doctrines, but to promote clarity and awareness. Well, this precept is probably the one which is actually the most directed towards ourselves rather than others because it's about how we harm ourselves with drugs and alcohol and so on, and medication. And, but more than that, it says not just with substances, but with doctrines. Mm -hmm. All of us probably at some time have become self-righteous about something. Mm -hmm. And we've been so self-righteously right about something, you know, so, it, so it's like toxic. And we actually, we actually harm ourselves when we start to have these really fixed ideas of the way life is. There's no fixed ideas of the way life is, it's transient. As soon as we get fixed ideas and we latch ourselves onto it, then it becomes toxic. We probably pump a lot of cortisol into our bodies, damage it, harm ourselves. Not to speak of the faults, not to speak of others' faults, but to speak out of loving kindness. Um, Another version of this, which is in Diane Rosetto's precepts, is to, I take up the way of meeting others with openness and possibility. Now, wouldn't that be a good idea if we did that to ourselves as well? Mm -hmm. They're related to ourselves with openness and possibility, as well as to others. And it's, it's important as part of Dharma practice to, um, to recognise fault, like to recognise if we've done something that's harmed someone. That's an important part of practice to have the humility to recognise that and to apologise and so on. It's a very important part of practice, interpersonal practice. Um, but if all we ever do is fault find in ourselves, with any, at any kindness. Well, there's so many people like that who come to see people like me and Peter and other people. A lot of people in psychotherapy are people who are just so hard on themselves. They're always finding fault with themselves. That's all they ever see. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's important to recognise if we've done harm and to acknowledge it. But the next step on, you know, is is to treat ourselves with the compassion that we would usually normally treat other people, you know, if we'd recognise that they'd made a mistake and acknowledged it. Mm -hmm. And that's why self-compassion is an important teaching, um, that it gives one the capacity to recognise. One, we've got to be honest with ourselves and not lie. And when we're honest with ourselves and we recognise some mistake that we've made, then it's very, very important that the, the nectar of self-compassion, you know, the, the medicine of, of self-compassion is, is, is there to heal. Some people just say, 
stay so stuck. Not to praise self at the expense of others, but to be modest. Certainly a good thing to do. You know, this, this tendency to raise the self above others is very endemic in human beings and the precept is there to get us to check how we do that, to realise the jewel, the jewel within us is the same jewel in everyone else. But some people can be so, so down on themselves and so fault-finding they never find anything positive in themselves. And self-praise is okay as long as it's realistic. You know, if, you, if you did a lot of work and you got a, a PhD, great. Mm -hmm. you can, it's okay to be happy with yourself that you know you achieve something like that, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, as long as it doesn't raise you above others, as long as it doesn't make you better than others. Mm -hmm. But some kind of self-validation for the things that one does well is, is important. It's being truthful. Mm -hmm. It's just don't get above others, that's all. Same issue. Um, Not to be possessive of anything, um, but to be generous. Well, it's a variation on the theme of some, how sometimes we need to be, of course we need to be generous towards others, but we can be generous towards ourselves sometimes, like when we're working too hard and we need to have a break and give ourselves some time off and do something which is good for our own spirit. It's important to have those things as well. One of the others, too, is on um, not misusing sex, you know, and treating, treating intimacy with respect and so on. Now, with the word intimacy, uh, personally with this precept, I would prefer, this is not the correct wording, but in my own mind, it would be better to say not to misuse intimacy rather than necessarily not misusing sex. And when I do couple therapy with couples and we start to talk about intimacy, my understanding of intimacy has kind of, kind of got three levels to it. And one is emotional intimacy. You know, and emotional intimacy is about the capacity to disclose core aspects of yourself to another person, to be able to be vulnerable and open to another person. That's emotional intimacy. Mm -hmm. And then there's the intimacy of physical affection, you know, hugging, kissing, holding hands, that kind of thing, um, which is um, not necessarily sexual. And then there's sexual intimacy itself. So all of those three things make up intimacy. And, and in intimacy, we're also vulnerable. You know, and uh, it's important that not only that we respect the openness and vulnerability of others, but ourselves. And in a broader sense, too, you know, in, in sort of the conversation that goes on a lot um, in the media is that we're understanding that people, that sexuality is on a spectrum, you know, and there's various types of ways in which people express their, their sexuality. And so if someone is naturally homosexual and they're trying to make themselves into a heterosexual, they're kind of doing harm to themselves. 
So it's about being true to one's own um, sexual, sexual experience and sexual identity. Not to harbour anger, but to forgive. Well, we kind of covered that one around fault finding and forgiving. And the last one is not to do anything that diminishes the three treasures, which means nothing that diminishes the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. But to move beyond Buddhism, not, not to do anything um, which, which attacks the sacred, whatever that might be. It doesn't necessarily need to be Buddhist teachings, but anything which denigrates the sacredness of life. Um, and we need to include ourselves in that. Because if we, if we denigrate the sacred, we denigrate ourselves. So there we are. Sister precept. Keeping us grounded. And complementing her other two sisters. Um, let's... Uh, Keep her in mind as we not only go through session but in after session. <laughs>